But with all the concerns about plague and virus, let's dig into the Hebrew of Psalm 91. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, friends, to the Line of Fire broadcast. This is Michael Brown. Delighted to be with you. Here's the number to call, 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-348-7884. By the way, Kai, my screen seems to be frozen. There we go. At least I see me on one screen. Hey, welcome to the broadcast. It is thoroughly Jewish Thursday. We want to edify you, build you up, strengthen you, and encourage you in the Lord today. Phones are open for any Jewish-related question. So if it relates to the Jewish people, modern Israel, if it relates to the Hebrew Bible, Hebrew language, if it relates to Judaism, Jewish religion, if it's Israel, Jewish-related, we'll take your calls today, 866-348-7884. I was in New York City yesterday with my dear friend Eric Metaxas, recording, oh, I guess a show and a half for his radio broadcast on my new book, Resurrection. Uh, I I really believe the angles that we hit on coming from a uniquely Jewish perspective will be edifying, will be encouraging, will be life-giving, and will be different on a certain level than anything that's been written about this before. So if you haven't gotten the book, be sure to get it, but get a copy for a Jewish friend as well. The title of the book, Resurrection, Investigating a Rabbi from Brooklyn, a Preacher from Galilee, and the Event that Changed the World. So uh, I was going to record a show Tuesday night, flew in from, where was I? Flew in from Georgia, yeah, uh, on Tuesday, and was going to record a show Tuesday night to air on Wednesday about dealing with fear. And the problem was, the mic I've traveled with for years, high-quality mic for recording my radio show, it broke. Something's wrong with it. Stopped working. So I was not able to do that show yesterday that I wanted to in the midst of panic, fear, concern with with the coronavirus and now more and more strong measures being taken, sports uh, events being canceled, uh, conferences being canceled, travel being canceled. I had an event, local event scheduled for tomorrow night, got canceled. An event scheduled for about a month out of New York City just got canceled. So people are concerned. And it's very easy to give way to fear. So I was going to do a whole show just focused on that, focused on the question of dealing with fear. But was unable to record it. We played a best of broadcast by interview with Dr. Michael Heiser about the subject of angels. I hope you were edified and blessed by it. But I thought, well, it's Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. Why don't we focus on Psalm 91? All right. Uh, Psalm 91, one of the standout psalms in the book of Psalms, meaning it's unique in many ways. It's one of the best known in many ways. So I want to look at that with you today, dig into the text, and then take your Hebrew-related calls. So again, if you have a question of any kind that is Hebrew-Jewish-related, 866-348-7884. All right, let's dig into Psalm 91. Again, a unique psalm in the entire book of Psalms. There is no superscription to it. It doesn't tell us who wrote it 
or when it was written. According to Jewish tradition, it was written by Moses, some say at the dedication of the tabernacle. That's when Moses wrote it. Psalm 90 is ascribed to Moses, and the following Psalm, Psalm 91, has no superscription. So Jewish tradition ascribes it to Moses, but we really don't know who wrote it, and we really don't know when it was written, and it's one of those timeless psalms. Uh, The Lexham Bible, the English translation, Lexham English translation, uh, titles this God's Protection in Times of Crisis. So I want to break this down. I want to share some comments from Charles Spurgeon in his famous Treasury of David and some other passages, other quotes as well. But I want to break it down word by word, verse by verse, as relevant. And I'll read it in Hebrew and then translate it. Yoshev Besetelion Betsel Shaddai Yitlonan. So you're used to hearing it translated something like the one who dwells in the secret place of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And, and that's an accurate translation in many ways. I want to break it down a little bit further for you because the foundation of the psalm is so important for everything else that follows. Charles Spurgeon said this, The blessings here promised are not for all believers, but for those who live in close fellowship with God. Every child of God looks toward the inner sanctuary and the mercy seat, yet all do not dwell in the most holy place. They run to it at times and enjoy occasional approaches, but they do not habitually reside in the mysterious presence. The opening word in Hebrew is yoshev. It is an active participle, which means this. If I say in Hebrew, ani kotev, it means I am writing. That's what I am currently doing. Ani kotev, I am writing. But it can also mean I am a writer because that's what writers do. They write. So an active participle can be speaking of ongoing activity, or it can be speaking of the description of the person that does that. So again, anikotev, ani is I in Hebrew, anikotev, I am writing, or I am a writer. This word, yoshev, means one who dwells somewhere, one who lives somewhere. It can also be an inhabitant. In other words, you, you live in this place regularly. That's what you do. You live there, therefore you are an inhabitant of that place. So Yoshev is not talking about just an occasional visit, an occasional here and there, I'm in the secret place, I'm in that hiding place. But no, this is lifestyle. This is something that is part of who we are in God, this pursuit to live in this place with God. You say, well, that's like a high call. Yes, it's a high call. Obviously, none of us can shut ourselves out from the world and and spend 24 hours a day alone in prayer and meditating on scripture, right? I mean, maybe maybe you have that situation, you're alone, you have no responsibilities, and virtually all day you have free. I mean, that's the rare, rare, rare person among us. Most of us are busy working jobs and raising families and involved in different activities and ministries and things like that, because of which our lives are stretched in many directions. So the question, I mean, how are you going to reside, live in the secret place while you're changing diapers of the newborn and the two-year-old is crying and the four-year-old is sick. How are you going to live in that secret place when you're trying to make deals and the, uh, at the car dealership and sell a car to someone, take them out for test drives? <laughs> How are you going to dwell in that secret place in, in the midst of the frenzy of, of life? So obviously, 
it's not talking about just being alone in prayer because then no one could live there. It's talking about being positioned in a certain way where my life is hidden in God. That word seter, uh, it, it's related to secret. If you do something basetre, you're doing it secretly. Seter could also be a hiding place, a, a covert that you run there to get away from the enemy, and it is your hiding place. It is your secret place. So it's, it's not the secret place in terms of it's a secret to find it. You know, you're in a mystery room, and you've got to find the clue, and you've got to find the key and get out, and it's a secret. No, it's, it's secret in terms of it's secreted. It's, it's a, it is a place hidden away. It is a place in God where others can't find you and others can't touch you. So I believe it all starts with our, our lives alone with God. I believe that it starts in our private relationship with God. And that without that solid foundation of quality time in his presence alone, on a regular basis, in prayer, in the word, in worship, unless we have that as a foundation, we won't be able to live in that secret place, in that hiding place. But if that's our foundation, then the course of our life can be hidden in God. That even in crazy times, even in difficult times, that we are consciously positioned in him and consciously pursuing him, and consciously in communion with him. Many years ago, a friend of mine did a teaching, and he made an interesting comment. He said, no matter what you're doing, you can worry. Isn't that true? You can be in in the midst of playing sports, and you're worried. You can be in the midst of a birthday party for your spouse, and you're worried. You could be in, in the midst of trying to fall asleep, and you're worried. You could be in the midst of that scenario, changing diapers with a crying kid and a sick kid, and you're worried. In other words, we can worry no matter what we're doing. And he suggested, why not worry the word? Meaning, why not always seek to bring the word to your heart, to your mind, and meditate on it, kind of in the background of everything that you're doing? There's a way that whatever's going on in your life, that there's a prayer going up from you. I don't mean in a religious sense that you have to be beating yourself over the head, did I pray enough, did I pray enough? But rather, there's a communion with God, that there's a consciousness of God, that whatever you're doing, whether you're flying on a plane or driving in a car, whether you're playing with the kids or having a a meal with the family, that there's a consciousness of God that's in us and that's going up to the throne. Does this make sense to you? Just like when you fast, uh, that, that you're conscious of not eating. So your body is feeling a little different on those days. And there is this constant sense of whatever you're fasting for is on your mind, and it's going up almost as a, as a constant prayer to God. The hunger of your body is almost going up as a constant reminder and a prayer to God of the thing you're focused on. That, that's kind of what it means to, to live in that place. So notice it's the one who dwells in the, this hiding place, this secret place of the Most High. Why is God called the Most High? Uh, even in the New Testament, Jesus is called Son of the Most High God. Well, because there were other competing gods, because there were others that claimed to be gods, because there were other powers. Exodus 15, who is like you among the gods, O Lord? And he's saying, no, no, he is the Most High. 
there are other powers and, and demonic things and angelic things and others that claim to be God, but he is the Most High. So if you're in safely with him, nothing can touch you. If, if you're abiding and living in him, isn't is that what Jesus taught John 15, abide in me and I in you, that it's lifestyle, it's, it's who we are, it's how we walk. Again, it starts with putting down deep roots in our private times alone with God. And then that deepens our ongoing consciousness of God. And now we can live, dwell, hidden in that place. Obviously, I'm not going to take so much time on each word, each verse, but I want to open this up for you more deeply. We'll continue in Psalm 91 when we come back on today's broadcast, Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Oh yeah. It is Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. Welcome back to the Line of Fire broadcast. There are reports from Israel that one company says they're very close to having a, a vaccine for the coronavirus that they were working on related vaccines for related viruses for some years now, and this is close enough. They feel they've had it. Uh, within a couple of weeks, they say it, it can be tested, but then it's several months. They said red tape, bureaucratic things, before it can be released to the public, but maybe things can be sped up. And Purim, the holiday of Purim, has just been celebrated. It's during this time that Israel's enemies, specifically Haman, wanted to wipe them out, and God miraculously delivered all right, if you have a Jewish-related question, we'll go to the phones in a little while, 866-34-TRUTH. But we're going through Psalm 91. And listen, we are pragmatic. We are practical. As God's people, the book of Proverbs gives us lots of wisdom that when you see disaster coming, you, you run from it, not to it. We use wisdom. This is part of, of what God's given us, all right? The physical senses that we have. If something's really hot, you touch it, your hand pulls away because you'll get burned. So we use wisdom, and there are things that we do at certain times and don't do at other times because it's not wise. Uh, on the other hand, we live by faith. We don't live the way the rest of the world does. We don't live in fear. We don't live in terror. We, we don't panic. If we have a healthy relationship with God, we know our lives are in his hands. And even though there may be pain and difficulty and hardship that we endure in this world, we have confidence and faith that he's with us and that in him we have nothing to fear. And even the most horrific things that come our way cannot separate us from God. Psalm 91, though, is one of those psalms that encourages us to press in more deeply to God, to know him more intimately, to walk with him more closely, and it does promise protection. And I remember decades ago, I just pulled out Treasury of David from my library right before the show today, but I remember decades ago reading in Treasury of David, Charles Spurgeon's commentary on the Psalms with lots of other comments and quotes from other preachers and teachers, just a, a rich, rich treasury, hence it's called the Treasury of David from the Psalms. But I remember reading quotes in there about people working during plague times in London, and these were Christian workers that were in the midst of it with people dying around them and they were untouched. 
So you don't just intentionally go into a plague situation and say, well, I'll be fine, all right? However, there are times when you're laboring in the midst of a situation and you have no choice, you're exposed to things around you, and God miraculously protects you. It's good, though, to have the confidence and mentality of Psalm 91 in our lives and that this is a lifestyle. So the one who dwells in the secret place, the hiding place, you can call it shelter, but I want you to get more of that feeling of if it's covert place. It's a place where you're secreted away from these other attacks. Uh, the one who dwells in this hiding place, the secret place of the Most High, that, that this one will abide or this one abides, and it's an ongoing sense in Hebrew. This is repetitive. This is where you spend the night, where you spend the night, where you spend the night. That, that you will spend the night, that you will lodge, you will abide in the shadow, meaning the, the covering of Shaddai. Now, we don't know exactly what Shaddai means. It's normally translated as almighty, and that's how we've come to know uh, the word. So we'll just leave it there for now rather than break that down further. And now you have different voices in the Psalms. Now the psalmist speaks directly first person. At the end of the psalm, God will speak directly. And, and here's what the psalmist says. Omar la Adonai, I will say to the Lord, machsi umitsudati. So I will say to the Lord, you are my refuge and my fortress. So it's the place where I f- go to flee and the place where I go for strong protection. You are my refuge, my, my, my stronghold, my, my fortress, Elohai, Eftachbo. You are my God. And then he says, I will trust in him. He makes that proclamation. So we can literally flee to God, not just with our problems and our emotions and our burdens, which Hopefully you do regularly in prayer. Just give them to the Lord, cast them on the Lord, throw them on the Lord, lean on the Lord. But we, with our whole lives, we can run and take refuge in him. I mean, as if he was a giant physical building that you could run into and be safe. It's that real, spiritually speaking. And the psalmist continues in verse 3. Kihu, now speaking of the Lord, for he, yatzilchami pach yakush midever havot, now you're going to get some very, very vivid language here, all right? As if you're being hunted, as if demonic forces are trying to hunt you down, or someone physically is, is out to get you. Uh, he will certainly rescue you from the snare of the hunter and from what? The destructive plague, uh, other translations, uh, the, the deadly pestilence, and uh, uh, the, the Hebrew word dever is a common word used for plague, for pestilence. And this is a, a particularly destructive one. So it says that he will rescue you from these things. Listen, I want to say this again. I seek to use wisdom in all that I do. So I've been, I've been traveling around the world, traveling around the states. I seek to use wisdom in what I do. And I know that in terms of viruses and things like that, the, the number one best remedy to, to prevent them is not even a vaccine, but a strong immune system and an overall healthy body. So I understand that. At the same time, I trust God with my whole life and I don't boast in my health or my, my physical well-being. I boast in the Lord. At the same time, I eat healthily. At the same time, I take uh, healthy supplements to boost my immune system even more and things like that, healthy organic supplements. At the same time, 
I put my trust in God to deliver me from the plague, not just as a random thing that I live my life at a distance from God and kind of, well, whatever, I do my own thing when I have a problem I come to. No, my lifestyle, my lifestyle is to be with him. That's what I seek to do. My lifestyle is to live in him. No, I don't always attain to that, but that's what I seek to do. And as I do that, I have a confidence that in that place hidden in him, nobody can touch me. Nothing can touch me. That should be our confidence in God. You say, yeah, but Mike, I mean, people die all the time and people get godly, people get cancer. Yeah, I I wrote a commentary on the book of Job. So yes, 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 thank you for, for saying that. Thank you for saying what others are thinking. I understand people die. People close to me have died. People I've prayed for for years for healing have died. I understand that. We have godly friends who lost children in freak accidents. I, I understand that these things happen. But I don't base my faith on what happened to others or what's happened to me. I base my faith on the promises of God. So I'm going to seek to live this out and see this realized. You say, well, it's just talking spiritually. It's just talking about spiritual attack. Uh, number one, I'm quite sure that the reader of the Hebrew Bible in the ancient world would not have made that distinction that this was spiritual only and not physical. For many, many reasons, I say that as a careful student of the Hebrew Scriptures. Secondly, the words that are used are as vivid as could be used to talk about plague and pestilence and, and disaster and things like that. So let's, let's continue. Verse 4, Be'evrato yasechlach v'tachat knafav techseh tzina v'sochirah Amito. So here again, promise of, of you dwell in the shadow, you, you abide in the shadow of the Lord, the shelter of the Lord, that he extends his protection. So here's an image as if God is like a, a mother hen or, or a, a, a bird, a protective bird. He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. His faithfulness will be a protective shield. It's, it's literally a shield and buckler, two different types of, of shields that are spoken of. The CSB combines them as a shield and rampart. Shield and buckler, shield, uh, excuse me, uh, CSB is protective shield, other shield and buckler, shield and rampart. Uh, some even say shield or protective wall. But it seems more likely to be different types of shields. It's his faithfulness, it's his truth that, that shadows us, that protects us, that covers us. And then it goes on. And, and because we have this relationship with God, therefore we don't fear. Verse 5, Lo mi pachad laila, yauf yomam. Very, very dramatic language in Hebrew. You need not fear, or you shall not fear. The terror by night, or the arrow that flies by day. These are images that could well speak of demonic attack. There, there were... Uh, demons that were recognized, demonic powers, dark powers in the Old Testament. There are are references to them, these chaos powers and different disruptive powers. There's a further revelation of Satan as we get further on in the Hebrew Bible. And then, of course, in full glaring light in the New Testament, Satan demons much more revealed. But the fact is there, there are these things. And when it speaks of fear, pachad in Hebrew, it can mean fear itself or the thing feared. And here we're told there is no reason to fear these things. The, the thing you fear, 
the fearful thing that could come on you. You do not need to fear it. And then again, plague language. Midever ba'ofel yahaloch, miketev yashud soharayim. So uh, you don't need to fear the the pestilence, the plague. There you have it again, dever, that same word used a couple of verses earlier. The plague that stalks in the darkness or the scourge that ravages at noon. So whether it's day or night, whether it's the middle of the night you're under attack or broad daylight, you don't have to fear these things. They are out there. They are real, but you don't have to fear them. Let me just tell you this. Everything described so far is a lot more severe than the coronavirus, a lot more intense, a lot more dangerous, and yet God promises protection to those who dwell in that shelter, that secret place, that hiding place. I'm just exegeting the psalm. We'll be right back. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us on Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. Michael Brown here. We are opening up Psalm 91, encouraging you to trust in the Lord, to take refuge in the Lord, to live in that secret place, that covert, the place where we can hide ourselves in God, the enemy cannot touch us. Psalm 91, if you've got a Hebrew-related question, Jewish-related question, we'll get to the phones in a bit. 866-34-TRUTH. So through verse uh, 6, we are reading promise after promise and confession of God being our strength and refuge. And plague, attack, fear will not touch us. Again, just picture that you run into that building. It's, a, it's an impregnable building, and you've got all kinds of enemies chasing you. You run in there, and you shut the door behind you. Let's say God shuts it behind you, and no one can touch you. That's the picture. And it is one, as we noted Spurgeon saying, not just for any believer, but for the one that really dwells and lives intimately with God. And this is an invitation to us as New Testament believers through the cross to live there. And you can live there in the midst of a busy life. It's not only for some secluded person in a monastery that can meditate and pray all day. This is for all of us in the world in which we live. But notice this, verse 7. And this is where we see the reality of it. And I'm reading in Hebrew, then we're translating, Yipol mitzitcha elef urivava miminecha elecha lo yigash. So a thousand may fall at your side. 10,000 at your right side, but it shall not reach you. Whoa, whoa. Do you get that? People are dying all around us. You might be in the midst of war. There are people suffering. There are people going down. Now, please hear me. Do not take this psalm as a right to judge people that suffer. Well, they got sick. I didn't. Well, they died. I didn't. Well, the, the tree fell on their house, not on my house. Well, the car crash affected them, not me. No, no, do not do this to judge others and to look down on others. One of the great lessons of the book of Job. 
which is don't look at others and say, well, you must have done something wrong because that bad stuff happened to you. It didn't happen to me. No, no, don't think that for a split second. However, as you do see fearful things happening around you, you can have confidence. God, I want to take refuge in a place because this is a promise to anyone that will. So, yeah, there may be these horrible things that happen around us, but there's no reason for fear. Verse 8, notice this. He's talking about specifically the punishment of the wicked. So the ones that are dropping dead around you, these are people dying in judgment, but it won't happen to you. That's the specific reference here. So only with your eyes you will see uh, the punishment of the wicked you will behold. And now the promises continue. Because you, you took the Lord. Psalmist says, my refuge, Elion, the most high, the one that is higher than every other power, every other so-called God. You've taken him as, as your, your, your haven, your place of, of, of rest. Let's just look at some other translations for that final word, ma'on. Uh, some say dwelling place. Uh, yeah, that... Shelter, but dwelling place works well. Uh, so this is again where you live. You live in a position of confidence in God. You live in a position of trust in God. You live in a position of leaning on God. You live in a position of breathing, just communing with God. You're you're not doing living your life separate from Him. You're living your life in Him. These glorious, wonderful promises exist. At the risk of being redundant, let me say this again: We build the foundation for this lifestyle in times alone with God, in our secret times with God, in our times shut away from others with him, because that's the foundation, right? That is the foundation for everything we do. Look at it like roots being put down deeply. That's why Jesus spent so much time alone with his father. Then in the midst of the busyness of public life and ministry demands and everything screaming around him, he could still walk in a sense of communion with God in the midst of all the chaos, the foundations were laid in secret. All right, verse 10, as we continue. And again, words of encouragement. Because you've done this, lo lo So no harm will befall you. No disease touch your tent. The, the word nega there uh, can, can speak of being smitten. Uh, it's related often with, with words having to do with severe skin disease, smitten. But it, it again, is a physical disease. It's saying it won't touch you, and it won't come near your tent, which is another way of, of saying your family, all right? Now, once more, I understand that we all know believers, godly people, maybe you listening, watching right now, you're sick in body, all right? You know people, godly people who are sick in body. You say, well, how does the psalm apply to them? Here's the way I read it. I do not judge someone else. Some of the godliest people I know have been physically very sick. People that love the Lord, people separated to God. And some of them have been chronically sick, all right? Some, some have been disabled, and they love God, and they, they are high-quality people in the Lord. So I'm, I make no judgment of anyone else or their relationship with God. All I want to do is take hold of this for myself and encourage others to do the same. In other words, this is not a psalm teaching you to judge others. 
This is a psalm encouraging you to come into this place. So I am always going to build my faith on what is written more than what I experience. If my experience confirms what's written, wonderful, wonderful. But I want to build my faith on what is written. So taking refuge in him, leaning on him, walking in him, living in him, finding that and dwelling in that hiding place, that secret place in God, I'm going to believe these promises for me and my family. Yeah, I'm going to do that. And I'll I'll tell you one very striking story when we come to the end in a moment. Uh, And then verse 11. Why will this be the case? Because he'll command his angels concerning you. To guard you, to protect you wherever you go. So you live in that secret place wherever you go. And now look at this. They, they'll carry you. They'll, they'll lift you up, carry you in their hands. Lest you hurt your foot on a stone. Do you think these are just empty words, friends? And are you just going to spiritualize them to make them fit your experience? Or are you going to let the Lord call you in deeper and call you higher? Hey, let every man be a liar, but let God be true. Isn't that what's written in Psalm 51 and quoted in Romans 3? Yeah, let that be the case. I'm going to trust what God says and believe him while I act with wisdom and seek to be pragmatic in all I do. And, and more promises. And some of these are reinforced further in the New Testament. Verse 13. So you will tread on cubs and vipers. The Hebrew has different words for lions that some, some we can't quite cover. But cubs works here. You'll tread on cubs and vipers. And you'll trample lions and asps. So these fierce foes, these dangerous foes, yes, you could say it's speaking of demonic powers. We're not literally trampling lions under our feet. But these demonic powers do real, terrible damage. And then God speaks now. So this is the intimacy of the relationship, friend. This is the depth of the invitation to know him and walk with him and trust in him. Kivi chashak. God says, because he's devoted to me, he's, he's cleaving to me, he's embracing me, I'll deliver him. I'll, I'll keep him safe, or some would say, I'll, I'll exalt him, I'll raise him up, for he knows my name. God says, when you really know him and walk with him, you, you get treated with that special relationship. When he calls on me, I'll answer him. I'll be with him in distress. So we do walk through hard times, and yet God carries us through supernaturally. I'll rescue him, and I will make him honored. Literally, I'll, I'll honor him, or I will treat him with honor, or I'll treat him so he is honored. This is God promising it. yamim asbiehu. I'll satisfy him with long life, and I'll show him my salvation. Wow. What's written in Luke 10, 19? Jesus gives his disciples authority over all the power of the enemy. And what does he says that we'll tread serpents and scorpions under our feet. Similar language, similar promise. John G. Lake, pioneer missionary in South Africa, 
turn of the last century, had an extraordinary experience. Now, Lake died at the age of 65. His wife died related to malnutrition, kind of giving away everything they had while there was no provision. She died leaving uh, Lake without his wife and their seven children without a mother while they were in South Africa. Lake lived from 1870 to 1935. So the last thing I'm saying is that Lake just skipped through life without a problem, without hardship, okay? And yet he experienced God's miraculous hand in the midst of a horrific plague in South Africa. People were dying so rapidly that they, they couldn't even dig enough graves, coffins for burial, burying people. They just wrapped in blankets and buried them together. It was a horrific time. And Lake was ministering in the midst of it and praying for people and yet was untouched. Now, again, he did not live his entire life untouched. I don't want to give you that impression. And I mentioned some of the hardship that he experienced and the loss of life he experienced. And yet, in this particular case, he experienced supernatural protection from God. And he went to one of the doctors that were there. People, when they died, this white foam would come out of their mouth. And the doctor said, how is it you're completely untouched? And, you know, he hadn't, hadn't gone through all the precautions because he was in the midst of this life and death ministry. And, and he said to the doctor, is that, is that the germ still alive after death? They said, yes, for some minutes it is. He said, put it under the microscope. Look at it. They said, yeah, everything is there. He said, now put the same germ on my hand. And they put the foam on his hand. He put his hand under the microscope. They said, the germs are dead. And Lake said, that's the spirit of life in Christ Jesus that dwells inside of us. Friends, there is a possibility, there is a potential, there is a grace in God that many of us never experience, never know. Let Psalm 91 invite you all the way in to that safe place in God, because nothing can touch you there. All right, we'll be right back with your calls on Thursday, Jewish Thursday. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Yeah, there was a prophecy by Sean Boltz where he said God had really visited him and shown him that this virus would be short-lived, that either it would turn quickly or a vaccine would come around quickly. If it's a true word, it's going to have to happen quickly. If not, we say it was a false word, right? Pretty simple. May it be true for the sake of everyone involved in those suffering and all the upheaval, and whatever deaths there are as tragic as, as they are, then there's the larger upheaval of society, and then there's the effect on economy and people's lives and so a big ripple effect. So we should be praying for God's intervention and then looking to be used as God's agents of mercy and looking to be those full of faith to pray for those in need. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Jordan, thanks so much for holding, and welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. I had a question about um, Acts fifteen twenty, yeah, where... Um, the Gentiles are told to refrain from, you know, sexual immorality, uh, food to idols, um, strangled animals and, and blood. And uh, I, I understand that, you know, obviously salvation doesn't hinge on that instruction. But 
I also don't want to totally discount it because, you know, there's a toll that it would be well to do so. But um, probably the main question is, is when it refers to blood, it seems to a lot of times just simply be put like blood that is still in the animal or the meat of the animal. But I was just curious if that's how it would have been thought of then. Or, you know, I know there's a lot of Jewish law that pertains to all sorts of different types of blood and, you know, should try to be clean of that. I just don't know how that would have been interpreted at the time for someone, you know, at least trying to do well with that, what they're asking you to abstain from. Yeah, so it's interesting that some of the, the laws mentioned have to do with, with food laws. And you think, why would that be so high on the list? You know, aren't there more important things to put there? But the normal understanding with that is, is it had to do with basic table fellowship with Jew and Gentile. In other words, that, that these things were so clearly forbidden by God in Scripture, and even some of them forbidden to, to the whole world, you know, back in Genesis, certain principles uh, to live by for the whole world, that just for basic table fellowship between a Jew and Gentile, this would be kind of a minimal thing for Gentiles to, to live by. There's question about the word fornication or sexual immorality. Does it mean sexual immorality broadly? Or did it spe- specifically point to incest, which many Gentiles did not think was was sinful? You know, there's debate about those things. But uh, obviously, not worshiping idols, starting there, sexual morality, just basic sexual purity. But then the food laws, as far as we understand, when it just says blood, uh, so things strangled, that would go back to Genesis, the ninth chapter, uh, as far as blood... Yeah, the understanding would be that because blood was sacred and the life was in the blood, that you were not to to drink the blood of an animal or eat an animal with the blood in it. It doesn't mean that it had to be sacrificed according to to Jewish custom or Jewish law, but it had to do with just the the pagan uh, practice of just eating food with blood in it. So it's again, it's not a salvific thing, and if let's say you were given a meal to eat and found out afterwards that there was literal animal blood in the meal, that does not defile you spiritually. Jesus explained that, that what you put in your mouth goes out the other side, goes in one side, goes out the other side, and does not affect you spiritually. It's what comes out of the heart that affects you spiritually. But this was something that God wanted the Gentiles to understand the sacredness of, and also for basic table fellowship with Jews, it was something to be avoided. So once more, it doesn't mean that the animal had to be sacrificed in accordance with Jewish law, but the prohibition of eating, drinking blood was certainly something that God wanted the Gentiles and the whole world to to live by. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Yeah, you are very welcome, Jordan. Appreciate the call, 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Franklin, Louisiana. Angelica, welcome to the line of fire. Yeah. Of, yep. Uh, go ahead. Judges nineteen and twenty. Yeah. When the um, Israelites had went to go into war against the Benjaminites, mm-hmm. and God told them three times, but it wasn't until the third time that they went and got victory. Could you kind of like enlighten? Because it, when it it appears like you know, I guess um, I'm just confused on the fact why would God tell them the first time, then Judah the second time um, to, to go, and then the third time, he say, I've delivered the things to your hand. 
Yeah, it's 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 a great question. You know, if if uh, we're praying about marrying someone, do we like oh got it wrong the first time? Oh got it wrong the second time? Got it wrong the th-? and each time God's saying marry. I mean that would be scary, right? Or right. you know, Lord, are you are you calling me to pastor? Yes, pastor this church then fails. Lord, did you really call me to pastor? Yes, take this church that fails. Then the third one that works. So obviously, it's not what we should be expecting, and it's not in terms of the common way that God does lead in Scripture, you know, when you really seek Him earnestly, that He opens a door, He shuts a door, or He makes His will plain. So for sure, this is not the norm for believers. But the only, the only things you could get from it, one would be, was God bringing them to a place of greater desperation? Was He bringing them to a place of greater dependence? Was He bringing them to a place to cry out like they hadn't cried out before? Maybe they were looking to him, but also looking to their own strength. Maybe they were looking to him and had mixed motives. So there must have been something God was doing through this. In other words, if everything had been right, right out, right, right out from the start, I don't believe this would have happened. So there must have been something else going on, either lack of real faith in their part or lack of real dependence in their part or lack of earnestness. The other thing is, this was an, uh, an intra-tribal war in Israel, the other tribes coming against Benjamin, and it was, it was a, a time of terrible suffering for all of Israel. Maybe there was judgment purging on all sides. Maybe there are other things that were going on that God was working on all at the same time. So you have to read between the lines and surmise, right? But those would be some of the things I would surmise. It's certainly not the expected pattern. And it's, it's certainly not the way we should live our lives. Like, you know, the Lord says, go left. He's like, get into a crash there. Go right, crash there. No, go straight. Uh, you know, again, the, what we understand, like Acts 16, Paul and his team want to go one way. God says, no. They want to go another way. No. Then he says, go this way. That's what you would expect. So, uh, you know, just like with Gideon, when God called him to go to battle, God then did a purging and a stripping. Because Gideon kept wanting more assurance, more assurance, and then God said, okay, I'm just going to whittle it down to a few hundred people. Instead of 20 plus thousand, we're going to whittle it down to a few hundred people. And there was that process that he went through. There must have been something going on. But beyond that, it's, it's your guess is as good as mine. But does, does, does that make sense just in terms of yes. deeper things God might want to get out of them in this process? Yes. Yes. Thank you so much. I waited all week to Oh, well, well, bless you. Thank, thanks for your patience, and uh, great talking to you. Be well. Thank you. God bless. All right. God bless. Um, hey, let me just take a, a, a couple more moments on Thoroughly Jewish Thursday to say, as expected, no surprise here, you knew this was coming. There are people who say that is, Israel's responsible. Israel's responsible for the coronavirus. They manufactured it. Oh, okay. They manufactured it, which is why they've had to deal with it strictly in Israel as well, and why they've basically quarantined the nation, probably over 70,000 in in quarantine in recent days. But then anyone coming into the countries, that means tour groups are just held up right now. God willing, our our tour for May will be fine. We've emailed everyone about that, but we don't know. Uh, We're we're planning on it, believing for it. But... uh, if you came in right now, you just, you're an Israeli coming back, you're quarantined for, for two weeks. You're someone that just had plans to go in and you go in anyway, you're quarantined for, for two weeks. Uh, so Israel made it, but I guess Israel didn't think ahead, huh? Oh, God.
you know, those arguing that this was manufactured in China, I mean, at least the thing came from China and, and trying to weaponize it against America and the world and all this, believe that a little bit better, although it's, to me, just another theory. But uh, we don't know the, the cause of the origin of it. But the Jews are always going to get blamed, especially if less Jews die because of, because of hygiene, because of keeping Mosaic law, because of extra quarantining. Look, during the Black Plague that decimated Europe centuries ago, and maybe a third of, of Europe was wiped out by it, uh, Jews suffered too. Many Jews died, but not as many percentage-wise because of Jewish law and, and laws about separation and cleanliness and hygiene and things like that. This just kept them a little safer. So they concoct this myth. The Jews poisoned the wells. Yeah, they used animal hearts and elements of the Lord's Supper. Yeah, and people believe this, and Jews were slaughtered for allegedly poisoning the wells. This is the madness of anti-Semitism. And, and, and if, in fact, Israel develops the first vaccine for the virus and it gets out quickly and spreads quickly, well, that's proof that Israel, that's proof that Israel made the virus because they came up with the vaccine. I mean, that's, that's just the way the madness works, tragically. If you've not yet read my book, Our Hands Are Stained With Blood, uh, after, well, 27 years in continuous print from 92 until 2019, we did an updated new edition, expanded, eye-opening, but we get into the history of anti-Semitism. We show you the madness of it. We even show it in church history and then God's eternal purposes for Israel. All right, may I encourage you, seek to live in Psalm 91 and be pragmatic, wise, Take care. We will talk to you again tomorrow right here.